welcome to the latest Movie Scramble podcast. We are recording on a beautiful, sunny bank holiday weekend, so naturally we are all in a good mood, apart from John, who had to get up early this morning because we were recording at 11. The good news <laughs> is all the gang are here. I am joined by both John and Simi. How are you both? Well, yes, I'm good. Suitably refreshed. I managed to get a, a decent lion, even though I had to go up and prepare for this. So thank you for that. <laughs> But yeah, apart from that, glad the sun's out, even though it's still a wee bit chilly. Yeah, it's far better than it was maybe, what, only two weeks ago when it was absolutely horrible, still winter weather. Yeah, summer's here. Can't go out, but summer's here. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, what about you? Not, yeah, I'm probably more genuinely well than John. He didn't sound too happy when he woken up early, regardless <laughs> of his time of it. He didn't sound too good for that. I mean, it, is, it does look like summer weather, but it's catfishing because I went outside this morning thinking, okay, I can just put the clothes horse outside, get some heat on the on there, because that's my life now, you know, like uh, try to get good weather for the, the washing. And all the, cars were iced, all the cars were iced over, so I thought, yeah, I'm not buying this weather, son. <laughs> you mean it's not tapped halfway there? I mean, it's Glasgow, so you're going to get somebody walking down Socket Hall Street with a t-shirt on regardless of the time of the year, but... Yeah. Yep, shorts and a hoodie, that's like the uniform of uh, the young team. You always see people in Tucky Hall Street with shorts and a hoodie on, which is the oddest combination ever, and you don't see anybody else apart from Glasgow. I know, I actually met my mate yesterday for a social distance walk, and he came to the door with shorts and a hoodie on. I'm like, mate, it's absolutely freezing. He's like, is it? Like, I'll be fine. I'm like, fair enough. <laughs> Better rather you than me. Shout out to Michael. <laughs> And his obviously his hardy exterior. So on today's <laughs> oh fuck off! Why? How is that even something worth laughing at? I'm making a genuine comment. <laughs> I am Dutch. I just say things. Two seconds later, doesn't make sense. Okay, right, Beth. I'm not going to be distracted by you two louts today. <laughs> so once we have all stopped with the giggles on today's podcast, we are going to be discussing the latest Thomas Vinterberg film. Another Round. This is a film that has generated quite a lot of excitement. It's BAFTA and Oscar nominated, as far as I'm aware, although if you look on IMDb it says it has 50 nominations for various things across the board. It is due to come out in the UK in June of this year, so we thought we'd give you a little preview of our thoughts before it hits the screens. The film is, I think, safe to say, can be described as a, a tragic comedy. It centres around four uh, middle-aged men who teach in an elite high school in Denmark uh, who decide that they're a little bit frustrated with life, they feel a little bit washed up, they're not really happy with how things are going in either their careers or their professional life. So they decide to take on this challenge which is in relation to keeping their blood alcohol content topped up. This is based on the teachings of a philosopher called Skarderud, I hope I've pronounced that properly, who believes that humans were born with a blood alcohol deficiency of 0.05%. And that if you keep this topped up throughout the day, you'll actually be able to relax, enjoy life, be a productive member of society and find happiness in your personal and professional life. So as you can imagine, four middle-aged men who are around children all day deciding to, you know, stash whiskey bottles in cupboards or in man bags or in toilets or whatever, at first is quite amusing. There's sort of no one winks as the guys walk around the staff room with their coffee cups topped up. But it obviously descends into something that becomes a little more tragic and a little more serious and offers up a real glimpse into kind of personal tragedy without becoming a lecture 
basically. I really like this movie. I loved the combination of music that they used in the soundtrack. I think we'll all agree later that the performances were excellent. But I like the fact that it was just a kind of straightforward story. Like there isn't any glitz and glamour to it. It's not anything that's particularly over the top, despite the, the subject matter. It's just quite plain spoken, as it were, and it just lets things unravel sort of as they naturally would. Simi, you are probably the person who's watched this most recently. What are what are your thoughts on the movie? Yeah, first off, I would say I really enjoyed the movie. I thought the performances were excellent. I agree with everything you said there. It's, it's very much a no-frills movie in its presentation, its story. It is what it is. You can look for deeper meanings here and there and stuff, but it basically was its heart on its sleeve, I feel. And there's, there's not really any big underlying subtext that needs to be kind of dissected and analysed. These are a bunch of middle-aged guys that start drinking, they enjoy it, they start drinking more, they enjoy it more, they, have some, they even have a bit more than that, and then realise things are starting to affect their life, as it would do if you were drunk the entire time. You can't go, there's a reason we don't go to work drunk, and unfortunately, and, you know, drink driving's illegal for a reason. We can't sit steaming with our family all the time, and unfortunately that's what these characters do, because they're oblivious to the fact that the impact is actually having on other people because they're drunk. It's impairing their thought process and their cognitive abilities. And yeah, I thought, I thought you mentioned it's a tragic comedy was uh, a perfect way to describe it because this is a very funny film, mm-hmm. but it was also not without its consequences as basically a big massive metaphor for it's like to be drunk. You can have a great time, but you will suffer for it. Yeah, absolutely. John, what about you? What did you think of the movie on first watch? Really, really enjoyed it. I saw this back, I think it was October, the London Film Festival showed it after its premiere, I think it was Toronto or something that it was originally screened at, and loved the movie, thought it was really, really good. Totally agree with everything you guys say. I think it's really a, a movie of two halves, though, because you've got all your initial drama and all the build-up of them getting up to this 0.5% alcohol level at all times. I like the way that it was structured in that. They, they set out rules. They would only drink between 8 in the morning and 8 at night. They wouldn't drink it in the evenings or the weekends So because it was just purely uh, an experiment, if you like. And they went through various stages of it, and the various stages were nice because it kind of chaptered the whole film. Mm-hmm. And like I say, it came up to a sort of a crescendo about halfway through the film where they were watching the football game. One, uh, to say one of the teachers is a, a PE teacher, and he teaches all these wee school kids, and there's one, is it Specs or something? Specs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and it basically, he, he comes across as some sort of motivational leader because the, the team start to do really well. And that's the sort of the high point. They have taken their alcohol intake to a certain level. They're managing it. And they've been very careful about it as well. Like you say, Sammy, when you talk about, you know, they, they can't drive or anything like that, but they... they the film is at pains to point out that none of them actually try to do that. Like mm-hmm. he's getting an Uber into work and things like that, you know, and they they try not to be obvious in front of the kids. Obviously that doesn't work some of the time with, I think it's Martin when he comes strolling into work one morning and he goes in and gets his coffee or whatever it is he's putting in uh, with his alcohol and then tries to leave and just smacks against the, the wall rather than actually walking out the door. But yes, it, there are consequences because they, they take it to a certain level. They get a wee bit gallus about it 
and say, well, we should be taking it further. You know, we we really you really need to push the envelope, and that's that comes across as being a bit of an excuse to, to drink a bit more. They, they're enjoying themselves so much that they want to keep it going. And the thought behind that is that if you drink more, you're going to enjoy yourself more. And like you say, they don't think of the consequences of their actions at all. And it's quite heartbreaking, actually, the way that there is that kind of downward spiral. It's almost immediately after that football game when they've all enjoyed themselves and celebrated you see what the consequences of their, their actions actually are like when they decide to go sorry they decide to have an experiment where they go all out mm-hmm. and they get really totally smashed and they're actually really obnoxious in a supermarket and you know and that they're, <laughs> they're messing about in a boat and things like that and you're going oh you know that's just it's, it gets to be dangerous at that point and it's not just them that the consequences are going to affect. It's going to be everyone around them, whether they know them or whether they don't know them. But yeah, like I say, it was a straightforward story, but it was it was very effective, I thought. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, that's why I was saying there's no kind of underlying kind of subtext. That's, that's not necessarily the film's got any depth to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, because these characters are very kind of complex in ways. There is a lot of kind of, there's a lot to take from the film, but yeah, it's not going to be for the fact that it's a very simple tall story from start to finish and kind of touching the structure you were saying there, John. It is almost kind of like structured like a drinking session where you mm-hmm. start off or you go to the pub or sit in the house, you have a couple of beers or that and a couple of gins or whatever and you're fine, you're enjoying it, this is quite nice. So you drink some more, but we've all been there when we have that too much next time we've absolutely smashed and you may ask yourself, then you need to deal with a hangover, and that's what this film feels like to me. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And as John says, the the football match is that kind of that point where you should you either make the decision to keep drinking or you don't. What I loved about this film as well is the the use of contrast, and I think that's really important. Not only just in terms of the style of music that they use, because they use like this kind of traditional Danish song, which populates quite a lot of the soundtrack as well. Contrast that with kind of punk towards the end. But I loved the scenes where it was almost kind of like, you know, it was hedonistic. They were, it was like kind of slow motion dancing and they were out enjoying themselves. They were making these cocktails and it all felt really decadent. And then two seconds later, you know, as you said, John, they're being dicks in a supermarket. And they're the type of people that if you saw them in that supermarket, you would be like, you know, calling out my own prejudices here, you would be like disgusted by them. You would walk away, you would not engage. And I loved how it contrasted this like, you know, kind of fun, good time, you know, guys getting together and sort of, you know, trying to recapture their youth or whatever with the realities of what they look like to other people. It kind of reminded me of, um, I was half expecting a scene similar to the Quaalude scene in Wolf of Wall Street because you're like, how did he get home? And then it shows you the reality of how that unraveled. And I think that's done quite well throughout this film as well, as it contrasts this kind of fun party time with actually everything's just a bit sad and it's a bit grim. You know, these are four middle-aged men and you're not maybe as, as cool and as fun as you think you look. Did that stand out to any of, to you guys? Or what did you think about kind of how they appeared like in the sort of sober light of day to use an alcohol-related term? Definitely. And as you kind of mentioned, they're sitting like uh, listening to like classical music and jazz music with their fancy cocktails and stuff. And it was very, oh, look at us, very kind of a hoity-toity upper market type idea kind of look to them. And then it cuts the supermarket steaming kicking about. Now, if you've ever been drunk during the day, you are, a, I, I've been steaming, kind of kicking about town during the day. And you are oblivious to sober people. You think you're hilarious. You think you're great (laughs) and sunshine and everything's a party. But 
it's not. <laughs> you're the you're the you're the you're the asshole. And I think that this film done incredibly well, which I think is I mean, I'm not an actor, but it's very difficult for I've always found it very difficult for actors to act drunk, only based on films I've seen. Yeah. Many films seem to get it wrong. Many actors seem to have difficulty in acting drunk. The performances of this film are brilliant because you can believe these people are genuine. That's how drunk people act. Yeah. The way their facial expressions or the way they walk, the way they're speaking and stuff, that kind of exaggerated mannerisms. It's very it's a very authentic film and how it portrays mm-hmm. drinking, which uh I thought was the biggest strength from it. It's how mm-hmm. real it was. How genuine it was. But also talks to the fact that drink is a big part of Danish culture as well. You can tell that in the same way. That's not to disparage the Danes in any way because it's exactly the same in Scotland. Drinking is a big part of the culture. And they emphasise that with a conversation that Martin has with his pupils when he talks to one of the boys and he says, well, how much alcohol do you drink? And this guy's like 16 years old. Mm. And it it works out something I think is about fifty units of alcohol a week. He drinks because he drinks Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. On a Wednesday, if it's the Champions League, that kind of idea. But that's it's instilled in them very early. And that the very opening scene of the film emphasizes that when they have the race around the lake and it's all the youngsters with the crate of beer and they have to take a drink at each station and all that. And it's made out to be, it's a good thing to do. It's it's glamorous. It's fun. And it is when you're young because you can go over hangovers and everything relatively quickly. But that's what these guys, these teachers are wanting to get back to. They remember when they were young and when they were kind of free from their responsibilities. They had a future. Now, yeah. obviously, if you... If you on the outside, if you look at these characters, there's only one of them you would actually kind of feel sorry for. That's the PE teacher because he's been through a breakup. Has mm-hmm. it's not really mentioned, but uh, I think his wife left him, and he's on his own. He's got a dog that doesn't have any doesn't have hind legs that work. You have to carry it out so it can go to the toilet and things like that. But the other three all seem quite. One of them single. He seems okay, he's quite happy. There's obviously Martin with his wife that hardly sees and his two teenage children. And there's the other guy who, well, he's just turned 40. He's the sort of the catalyst for this. He's the one that introduces all the theories and everything and documents it. Now, out of them, he seems to be the one that has the ideal life. He's married, he's got young children, seems to be fairly settled but he's completely miserable because he hasn't slept for two years he has children that go to the toilet on him which uh, was graphically detailed there and uh, I know some people pay a, a reasonable amount of money for that sort of service but obviously <laughs> no you're all right thanks so if you you looked it's, it's like you said Sammy if you look at a drunk person on the street then you see a complete shambles. But if you're the drunk person and you're looking at everybody else, you're thinking, I'm really, this is great, I'm brilliant. But everybody else is just dead square and all that. And it's that same sort of contrast that you get with uh, looking at these characters as well. It depends how you look at them. If you're the inside looking out, it's all one big party and getting naked and playing the piano in a pub and all this sort of stuff. But if you're looking in on it, then it's just, they're just a mess. It's horrible to look at. And I, 
I did think that it really, just to pick up on what you said there, John, I did think it really played on what I imagine is actually a lot of people's fears. I think particularly in the last year when we've all had some extra time to do some thinking about, you know, our jobs and where we are in life and stuff like that. I think a lot of people will watch this movie and, and really resonate with that feeling of, you know, oh God, like suddenly I'm in my 40s, I'm, you know, I'm married with kids or whatever the domestic situation is. And, you know, would if I could go back to when I was 16, would I make the same choices? Would I be in the same career? Would I, you know, and I think that will really resonate with a lot of people actually watching it. You know, there's not some sort of tragic event that's the catalyst for all of this. It's just four guys who are a little bit dissatisfied with what they have. And I think that's what makes it even more frightening because it's almost like, well, it could be anyone because it's just, you know, a bunch of guys who've decided that, you know, they're maybe not where they thought they would be in life. Um, and I think that's another strength of the, the film as well, is that it's not some, you know, like a tragic death or an explosion or something that propels these guys into a life of, you know, miserable alcoholism. It's, you know, four guys, they're sort of had their kind of light bulb moment because somebody's hitting 40 and, you know, they're not alcoholics straight away. In fact, if anything, at the start, it's all a bit kind of giggly and fun and, you know, you've hidden your bottle of whiskey inside the boot room at, at school and stuff like that. And, you know, Martin actually delivers really engaging lessons because when the movie starts, he's just a bit bored, he's a bit switched off and all of a sudden you see his lessons come to life and he does that really funny comparison where he's like, who would you vote for? Mm-hmm. And he describes, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's FDR as like, you know, an alcoholic who would you know, beat his wife up or, you know, Churchill or here's this guy, he's friendly to women, he's a vegan, really good around children and he believes in democracy and everyone's like, oh, I'd vote for that guy. And he's like, well, you just voted for Hitler. And I thought that was <laughs> really funny. But you kind of see that spark about him and in a way it's like, it's sad because it's like, that probably was the teacher he was when he first started teaching and he was really engaged. So in a way, I don't want to use the word pitied, but they can be pitied because there is something that's lost there. And the sad thing is it's it's youth and there's not really many ways to, to reclaim that. And I thought that was just particularly interesting as well and actually made me a bit kind of like, oh, like these are just four guys who are bored. Like it's there's no big tragedy here. So I really kind of like that idea as well. Yeah, the, the lives are a little sad. Um but it's not, as you say, it's not this big uh, catastrophic event that drives them to drink. They're just, as you say, a bit bored. Uh, look, he tries something a bit different. And you, you see, like, Martin, at the beginning of the film, he is a dull guy. <laughs> he really is. And a few drinks in him, he's great. And from the outside looking in, he does look like something you draw be around. It's the whole fun Bobby aspect from Friends. Mm. Although I think this, I think this film handles the alcoholism a bit more sensitively <laughs> in that episode, and it it does so by romanticising people's relationship with alcohol at the beginning, and it really plays on that by showing you like Ernest Hemingway and Churchill mm-hmm. and all the kind of accomplishments they managed while spending most of the day absolutely smashed. Mm-hmm. But there's also consequences to that as well. When I mean, but I suppose there's foreshadowing. I think mm-hmm. maybe regarding that, and but the film does show the consequences of the drinking because you can't just keep getting drunk all the time through the day and expect nothing bad to happen. I don't like a, a Guardian article by let's re let's revisit these great men like Hemingway and their relationships with alcohol and they kind of work mm-hmm. the way and produce, but it's not as straightforward as yeah, alcohol makes you great. There has to be a downside to it. There has to be, I think, the film here does handle that. 
And you kind of mentioned the drinking culture of Denmark, and yeah, I think we can identify that quite a lot, being where we live. The original title of the movie in Denmark translates to binge drinking, mm-hmm. which I think is quite apt at identifying that culture, especially when taking into account the speaking to the students, mm-hmm. where another round also does work really well. I find it interesting that the, the film is called Binge Drinking. Yeah, I feel like another round softens it a little bit because, like, yeah. oh, let's get another round in, and that to me is a lot less threatening than, you know, the the words binge drinking obviously conjures up images of like you know, I don't know people sprawled on Sucky Hall Street or whatever. I didn't actually know this about like I mean, I'm kind of Scandi obsessed. I kind of love this whole like you know Denmark is this sort of you know Nirvana of equality, and you know people get four years off if they want to have a kid and all that sort of thing. And you know I am actually quite surprised because I always think of when I think of Denmark, I'm like you know furs and cozy candles and wooden furniture and sort of you know I never think of it as that like you know I've walked down Sucky Hall Street many a time and somebody's you know holding their pals here while they're stuck up a lane and I just never thought of that as being something that was quite you know embedded in, in Danish culture so that was quite a shock actually. I suppose as well when you think about the the heritage of these people mm-hmm. like a kind of Viking blood they'll have running through them at some point you know it's yeah no I mean it's the, the, the whole, <laughs> it's the the whole sort of Scandinavian thing isn't it like Norway's known for neo-Nazis Sweden's known for uh, cold winters and suicides and Denmark's known for alcohol consumption so I don't yeah. see I thought the Finns were known for saunas and suicides I thought that was like the two S's of Finland <laughs> you know Finland doesn't exist what Finland doesn't exist you could google this I am not joking I have not made this up you can oh, google no. it Finland doesn't exist it's a conspiracy I think it's to do with the Trans-Siberian Railroad. It's to do with this importing of transporting of goods. Yeah, Google it after this podcast. Finland <laughs> doesn't exist. Okay, I'm going to spend. I was. I had plans to like go out for a walk and embrace the fresh air, and now I'm going to be on Reddit all day. So I mean... Yeah, we've just lost our Finnish listener as well now <laughs> because uh, they've decided that they don't exist. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> To go back to the movie just briefly, I would just like to touch on the performances in particular of Mads Mikkelsen and Thomas Bo Larsen, who I first saw in the yes. movie Fiction, which came out years and years ago, which if you haven't seen, I fully recommend. Sorry, what was that film? Festin. Um, I think it might also be a Thomas Winterberg film. It's about a family party that goes incredibly wrong, and he's very, very good in that as well. I just thought he he looked like, it's funny that he had a Thomas Bolarson had a dog with with no legs because he looked like a wounded puppy and this to me the whole time you could tell that as you said John out of all the guys his life was just slightly more shit than everyone else's you know he was the PE teacher his wife had left him and all that I just thought his performance the whole way through was just I couldn't take my eyes off him I just wanted to hug him everything about the way you know he had really sad eyes and everything about the way he tried to keep up with his friends and when you saw like kind of how his house was and it just everything was just so grim and you kind of wanted to shake the rest of them and be like you're doing this to your friend like you're destroying this guy with your nonsense because you've all got fancy like you know these big glass and wooden houses and good jobs this guy is clinging on by a thread and and you've done this to him I just thought his performance really stood out as you know just completely compelling just emotionally draws you right back into for all that as we've said you know there's the fun of the cocktails and the dad dance and stuff like that for me, his character was the one that really anchored it in just how sad 
this film could be at times. And in terms of Mads Mikkelsen, I think this is one of his best since The Hunt. I think it was a really nuanced, you know, really quite emotive performance. He kind of loses his temper a lot and he smashes a lot of glass. And he's also quite vulnerable and quite sad and quite quite an introverted person in himself as well. So I thought this was one of the best that we've seen from him in quite some time. And I don't know if it's just because he's back in the hands of someone like, you know, Thomas Vinterberg and it's an inherently Danish film with Danish problems being dealt with. And I don't know if maybe that's what's making it stand out. But what did you guys think of the kind of central performances? No, sorry, as all those things, I, I agree with you there regarding the, the Mads Mikkelsen kind of like being kind of being like a, a, such a Danish film and it's compared to what mm-hmm. I was saying earlier, but the, how authentic and genuine this mm-hmm. movie is and they're telling a story which re- resonates in other cultures. Like I said, I've said this many times already, but it does resonate with a West of Scotland drinking culture that is quite similar in that sense. And yeah, the other performances were absolutely excellent. I can't really say much for else than that other than what I've already said. I just could repeat myself, but yeah, brilliant performances. Yeah, you believed that they were the characters, which is not an easy thing to do. You mm. believe, I mean, when you see an actor, especially somebody like Mads Mikkelsen, in so many different roles, and you can tell he's obviously a fantastic actor, but you can get a certain sense of when these guys are actually acting, doing mm-hmm. proper, you know, acting stuff, you know, uh, emoting and everything like that. But it wasn't the case here. Like you say, Mary, he was quite buttoned down. Like you said, Thomas, he was he was a bit boring. He was a bit dull because at one point he actually says, you know, am I boring? <laughs> and now, now, if you're having to ask yourself that question when you're in your 40s, then there's obviously something that's not right. But you believed that he was a history teacher. You believed yeah. that another guy was a PE teacher because we can we can recognise that from our own lives and our own experiences, being at school and everything, the type of people that they are, the, the PE teacher, I mean, our PE teachers were all nuts. They were all in charge of like the social committees and all that. So they had uh, more probably alcoholics <laughs> more in the passing interest in alcohol. Yeah. So, but basically, they've got nothing else to do. They shout at kids all day. So, what are you going to do after that? Well, start drinking, you know. But yeah, it, it worked very well because of that. And there was no outlandish performances. I know it was quite outlandish some of their behaviour, but that was them under the, the influence of alcohol. Mm-hmm. The characters themselves, but nobody outshone anybody else. They all kind of worked together, and you got the sense that they were actually friends. They came across as having sort of mutual respect for each other, apart from, like, say, they were blind to the fact that the damage that they were doing to the Thomas Bo Larson character. Mm-hmm. It just that was kind of, but that's because partly because they they were all a bit high in the fact that they were enjoying what they were doing, and partly because. Everybody's wrapped up in their own problems. You, you hear that time and time again that, oh, I never knew there was anything wrong. You know, I didn't think because everybody's in their own wee world and they've all got their own issues and their own problems. And they don't want to uh, have anything to do with other people's problems because it can open up a real can of worms. You, you may not be invited to actually have a conversation with someone if you bring up oh you know are you okay you know you're you know you're looking a bit rough like you said to me the, the this morning you know I, I didn't have my 10 hours sleep you know now, I, took that, I, I took that fine I was okay with that but you know if I was a a less than open person you know I I, I may take offense at that because I get less than my 10 hours sleep but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> 
But you know what I mean? You know the point I'm trying to get across. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. I think that I think it, as as we've all said, it's the the grounding and the the realism of then of course Spinterberg subscribes to the whole of my school of, of filmmaking, etc. So it is very much realistic, you know, this could easily happen to any one of us or whatever. And I think that's what makes it so compelling and quite frightening at the same time. The film is obviously due to be released, as I said, at the end of June, should the cinemas be open, etc., and be receiving guests. So I certainly would recommend this. I would go and see it, to be honest with you, again and again. I think it's thoroughly deserving of all the plaudits and awards buds that it's that's getting just now, particularly for the, the performances um, of Nicholson and Thomas Bovarson. Sammy, would you recommend this to our listeners? Yeah, definitely. I definitely recommend it. Uh, it's not the most cinematic movie you're going to get when it comes out of the cinemas, but please go and see it in the cinema because they need you. Yeah. <laughs> we need them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and John, I take it you would recommend as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and go to a cinema that doesn't serve alcohol, obviously. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah. if, when you watch the first half of it, you'd be you'd, you'd be getting to the mindset of, I could have a wee drink watching this. Yeah. But don't. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I watched it yesterday morning, uh, quite early, because <laughs> at the, the whole first hour, I'm kind of like, I really could just go look a wee. Do you know, I felt the same thing as well. I felt the same thing. See, when they were out partying, I was like, God, I miss going out getting pissed. Like, I really love going out with my friends and getting drunk. And then the more obviously progressed, I was like, okay, I might have a problem. Um, Yeah, it might make you think twice about your GFT wine if you're sitting in the back (laughs) of the scene one going, oh, right, okay. (laughs) What was it with the ice cubes, though? When they were making up the the cocktails of the jazz uh, musicians, these ice cubes, and they were massive, big balls mm-hmm. just, they were, I, I thought how do you get ice cubes like that you know, I know. do you have a mold yeah we have yeah. one of them it's a it's a death star a death star mold we also have the hand soul of, of uh, course it one. is <laughs> so we have we have one of them and if, if i feel like you're like an old-fashioned or something like that like the big because yeah. when i ordered an old-fashioned in krakow they gave me an like it was literally like they chipped an iceberg like it was this huge like i don't know if that's a thing but massive big Balls of ice, yeah. I have not an old fashioned in ages, and now I'm tempted to go to Tesco and just buy oh, the I love ingredients. An old love an old fashioned. I think I was a cowboy in a past life because I I don't like like oh I often think that about you, cocktails. I like bourbons yeah. and you know that sort of thing. I like that. Yeah, definitely, definitely a cowboy. <laughs> what did you speak um, about in the past? So I'm just curious. The cowboys kind of predate the Nazis. I'm just kind of curious what you spoke about. It'd have been the Klan, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, there was all, there's always stuff to rape and pillage, don't you worry? <laughs> He's cut that out, I swear to fuck. I need to stop talking. No, that's the so, lead. <laughs> it's the name of the podcast. I am never going to get invited on any other podcasts. Okay, so we've obviously spoken about another round. It's three recommends from us. And one of the most prominent themes, as we discussed in the movie, is, you know, a bit of a midlife crisis. These guys are obviously all either just turning or are in their 40s, and they're having a wee think about how their life has got to, to where it is. So we decided that we would look at other films that covered a, a similar theme of the midlife crisis. So we've picked our top three in usual movie scramble format, and we'll talk through those just now. I believe I'm actually up first, is that right? It is, yes. And to anyone that knows me, it's no surprise that my first choice is a Sam Mendes' 1999 movie, American Beauty. Looking back on this film, it does have, and knowing what we all know now, it does have a kind of slightly sinister 
more sinister I don't know, theme running through it, perhaps, of uh, underage grooming. But basically, it tells the story of Lester Burnham, who is played by Kevin Spacey, who narrates the film from the perspective of after his death. And he basically talks about how he ends up dead. He is married to Carolyn, played by Annette Benning, who's also going through her own sort of crisis. She's returning to be an estate agent. And basically, it's quite clear that their marriage is not what they want it to be. His life has not turned out how he wants to be. He's a very small cog um, in his place of work. His new boss doesn't like him. He has to try and justify his job. He's just miserable. He's not happy in his personal life, his professional life. And all of a sudden, he starts to notice his teenage daughter's friend, Angela, played by Mena Savari, which, of course, gives way to the whole quite famous uh, rose petal scenes. What I kind of like about this movie is if you look back on it and you actually look at, like, for example, the you know the kind of theatrical trailers, it really plays on this idea that we have no idea what's going on under the facade. And it kind of hits on what you said, John, about, you know, well, I didn't know. So the film sets up this family who, by American standards, you know, live in a nice house and a nice neighbourhood, have good jobs. And yet every single person inside that house is so utterly miserable. That kind of comes to a head in this uh, kind of famous dinner table scene where Lester's character obviously picks up the dinner plate and smashes it off the wall and ends up just absolutely screaming at his wife. And it really sort of peels away this kind of, you know, suburban facade that Hollywood has been keen to present and America has been keen to present for such a long time of these kind of happy families and it just kind of shows everything about it is kind of like festering like his you know completely unhealthy obsession with an underage girl his dissatisfaction at work his wife who's obviously trying to recapture her youth by looking good for her real estate job and she obviously ends up having an affair and then you have Chris Cooper as the sort of mental next door neighbor the kind of ex-army guy who beats up his son and he's you know sort of verbally abusive and it's just it just strips everything back and you see that underneath you know the nice red brick work and the little white picket fences there's a lot of lot of shit going on and I think that this is one of Spacey's best roles you know like him or not um, it is a, a role he's absolutely perfect in he captures this sort of bitterness and resentment of this middle-aged guy who has his you know, he thinks he's having his head turned by this this young girl. And I just, I think it's a, a perfect example of crisis in every sense of the words. Like, there's not a single thing that's going right in this movie for any of these characters. Like, none of them are happy. None of them are nice people. And it's probably a more extreme example in comparison to another round. But I think it's just, everything about it is, like, nasty and seedy. And it's like, this is midlife crisis, like, times a million. It's just... Everything about it is so grubby and just, you know, it's the perfect example of, you know, guy runs off with younger women or guy buys a sports car. It's that, but taken to the next level. I take it you guys have both seen it. It's a fairly, you know, built-in film. Do you know what? I have seen it, but I, I couldn't tell you anything about it. I've not seen it since it came out. And really? Other than, seriously, and other than the, the, something about a plastic bag that was parodied in an Elton movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I honestly, yeah. I, I can't remember much of anything of this film at all. I, think I, I don't know if I watched it drunk or my shit, but or I just erased it from my mind in recent years. Uh, I don't know. But yeah, I couldn't take anything about it. Apart from, I know I have seen it. It's ridiculous oh, that's, that's such, a, such an iconic yeah. film as well. Yeah. No, I, I, I have, again, it was a long time ago, but I... I uh, remember it a wee bit better than Thomas. I remember the Annette Benning character as being a very sort of powerful 
strong character and the fact that he didn't go on with her. I found out just by accident last week about the title of the film, American Beauty. It's actually a type of rose, ah. which I, I'd, I'd never, I'd, I'd never thought about it. I just thought it was his obsession with a young girl, which obviously mm -hmm. played into that. But the American, the American rose, looks beautiful, but has a, a real tendency to rot from the roots. Oh, so underneath it, so it all kind of works in. I know, I know. Yeah, chef's kiss and all that. Yeah, yeah. which uh, I, I thought was pretty powerful and just based on what you were saying there about how underneath everything is all basically messed up. I remember the soundtrack from it as well. The soundtrack, the Thomas Newman soundtrack yeah, is yeah, fantastic yeah. as well. And apparently the the paper the plastic bag was part of the inspiration for the whole film. It was one of the initial ideas that they had and things were starting to get built around that, Thomas. That was one of the, the reasons. But yeah, it was, it's a very good film, no matter what you actually think of, obviously, Mr. Spacey. It is a very good film and it's a very good performance. It's one of these ones, it's, it's going back to the old argument of do you separate the performance from the performer? And yeah. in this case, yes. Yeah, you, you can do. It's, it's pretty good and it's a, a really, really good example of, of someone who is going through a real crisis. But again, it's a very small crisis. It's the same idea as another round. It's a, a crisis of their own making in a way. They've, mm -hmm. they're, they're unsatisfied with what they've got. Now, if you look at it from the outside, they've got a perfectly serviceable life. They're perfectly happy. They're not poor or anything, but yeah, it's it's just general malaise and unhappiness really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's a film that, as I say, I, I've watched it many, many times and there's just, there's something about it that feels grubby and I kind of like it because it is it's what it, what they're talking about and what they're dealing with is grubby and I kind of like that John your first pick I believe you're up next okay my first pick is the 2000 film Wonder Boys which was directed by Curtis Hansen it was his follow-up film to LA Confidential and it stars Michael Douglas, Toby Maguire, Francis McDormand, Katie Holmes, and Robert Downey Jr. Wow. This, I know, it's a really top-notch cast. The story surrounds the character of Grady Tripp, who is a professor at a university. He teaches creative writing. He is also a novelist. He had a, a very, very big hit with his first novel and has been struggling to follow up ever since. I think it's seven years and he's still working on the follow-up, which has uh, got up to about two, two and a half thousand pages, something like that. And he just doesn't know how to finish it and he's really struggling. His third wife has just left him. He is basically self-medicating with marijuana. He is having an affair with the chancellor of the university who is married to his boss, who is the uh, the head of the English department, and he's having blackouts as well. So you can clearly see where the crisis is there. And the thing is, this is a, a film that is actually really funny. There's a, a, an awful lot to take from this because it's just based around a single weekend where basically everything goes wrong for him. His girlfriend tells him that she's pregnant, so therefore there's all the sort of problems around that. His boss and his boss's dog, who's called Poe, because it's a very academic sort of 
film and surroundings. Yeah. It's very, very sort of uh, set very heavily within academia. The dog hates him because the dog knows that he's having an affair, but the dog is blind and he can't see him. So he's, he's, any time he sniffs him, he goes for him and everything. And that's uh, one of the main elements of the film. And it's ba the, the basis of the crisis is basically his life has come to a certain point that is everything has basically come to a head in terms of his literature, in terms of his home life and in terms of his professional life. And it's it's just fantastic. I watched it again just a couple of days ago. It's on BBC iPlayer. It's, okay. I think it's one of these ones that's perennially on there. And it's available for like 11 months or something on iPlayer. So you seriously should watch it. It's a, a brilliant film. And it was one that completely bombed when it came out as well. It just did not do well at all. And then it was re-released about six months afterwards and it bombed again. <laughs> it's, it's kind of gained a bit of prestige since then based on the fact that it's it's a really good story and it's one of these films that people look back on primarily for Robert Downey Jr. because he was going through his own personal problems at the time and he was a big gamble for them because he wasn't reliable in any way and he had to convince the producers that he was actually fit and able to do the work and he did. He came, he did exemplary work he went back to Los Angeles and he broke all his bail conditions within about two days oh, of the and got himself in all sorts of trouble. But it didn't affect the film in any way. So, yeah, have either of you seen this or read the book? No, but you've definitely sold me on it. And if it's on an iPlayer, then I will put I mean, I feel like I need to use this as much as the sunshine and I want to catch up on some binge watching. And I think that I'm going to watch this because the cast's incredible. Like, I had mm -hmm. never heard of it. And yet it's a really strong cast. Yeah. Isn't it as well? So it's a shame. I mean, to bomb twice. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> like, <laughs> how much bad luck is that? But no, it's actually good. Aye, no, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. You've seen it, Thomas? I haven't, no. Mm -hmm. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's, it's actually one of my favourite films. I've seen it maybe half a dozen times now. And it's one you can go back to every couple of years and you get there's a, a real good appreciation that you can get from it every single time. Yeah, it's well worth it. Sounds good. Sammy, your first pick. My first pick is Birdman, directed by, and apologies if I butcher the guy's name, Alejandro G. Inerito. Ask Chris if that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, oh. I said to him the other day, see, when we were watching The Shield, I must actually shout, is that your dad? About 20 times an episode. Like, I really need to stop. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the film stars Michael Keaton is Regan Thompson, uh, washed up actor who is kind of having a kind of crisis in his career. He's known for playing a superhero called Birdman and then he's trying to reinvent himself as a proper serious actor by doing a, a Broadway play. Now, when you think of Michael Keaton in this role, you automatically think of maybe some kind of parallels with it and apparently Michael Keaton was actually hesitant when taking the role because he thought to the director, are you taking the piss out of me? But as the director said, the film came about before Michael Keaton was even in mind for it. It just happens to be one of those nice little kind of harmonies where you can't imagine anybody else being in that role because it has clearly parallels between both characters and the what they're known as. But in this, it's not as subtle with the midlife crisis aspects of it as, say, another round. He does have issues with alcohol. There's themes of suicide and attempts. There's infidelity quite openly and most noticeable in the movie is his hallucinations where he imagines the Birdman character 
following about, almost like a reverse conscience. Basically, it's he's trying to get him to ditch the play and make more Birdman films because that's where the money is and stuff. But he is more interested in trying to reinvent himself because he doesn't want to be known as this superhero character. He wants to be known as a serious actor. It's all about his own vanity in many ways and dragging in some of the more issues with the midlife crisis, this most stereotypical aspects of it. He's divorced. He has issues with his daughter, who's a drug addict, uh, played by Emma Stone brilliantly. It is, like I said, very stereotypical in terms of the box-ticking aspects of a midlife crisis, but it's a brilliant film, and I'm not a big fan of this director. I've seen I've seen previous 21 Grams and Babel. I didn't like them. I just thought, ah, I'm not a fan of this guy's work. And when this came out, I had zero interest in it. And despite all the great reviews and the by the usual suspects, I was like, I just don't think it looks any good. And I had written this movie off within the first two minutes, like the opening scene, but even less than that, because I thought it was going to be terrible. It's going to be up his own ass, pretentious. And it wasn't, I thought it was very, very honest, very fun for a lot of it. But Michael Keaton's performance, it's got a great cast. Is that? Galifianakis, you've got Andrea Riseborough, Ed Norton, Emma Stone, it's this brilliant cast, but Michael Keaton is just brilliant in it. He's funny, he's tragic, he does, he feels, he's pitiful. He's a pitiful character because you're like, ah, just, is this right for you? You know, you're going through all this kind of heartache and pain for your own ego, just so you're not known as that good in a superhero film, and it is quite sad. It's such a bright film. I absolutely love it. You both seen it? Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. I loved that movie. Thought it was brilliant. I liked the sort of the, the fake one take aspect of it yeah. as well, and the fact that there was like the music was incorporated actually into the scenes. You would see the guy drumming in the background and all this sort of stuff. Michael Keaton was absolutely phenomenal on it. He was just brilliant. He he does Crisis very well. He's done it a few times. That type of performance and yeah he's absolutely brilliant at it really good movie yeah i think it made me i kind of really appreciate uh, michael keaton again because i think the last thing i seen him in before that was that is it the other guys with mark Wahlberg when he plays the manager at bed bath and beyond so i think i kind of like i'd seen him in batman i'd seen him in that and i'd probably seen him in anything in between so it kind of made me really appreciate how good he is and i'm pretty sure a fun fact that ties both of your movies together i'm pretty sure michael keaton's actual name is michael douglas it is that's right yeah yay so i I thought I'd read that at some point, so I was like, I don't, I don't want to commit this to saying it out loud in the podcast if it's wrong, but fuck it. Okay, so my next pick is 2002's A Far From Heaven, which was directed by Todd Haynes. I feel like I'm cheating a wee bit at saying this is a midlife crisis, but I'm going to go with it. So it is kind of similar to American Beauty in the sense that it presents this kind of, as I say, this, you know, beautiful Americana, 1950s Connecticut, lush green lawns, beautiful brick houses, it presents this kind of facade and it is shot like, you know, like a like a Rock Hudson movie. It is shot like All That Heaven Allows or something like that. It's the dreamy technicolour, really rich. The costumes and everything is just really over the top. It's fantastic. And it centres around this character, Carol, played by Julianne Moore, who is the, the perfect housewife. You know, she's married to Dennis Quaid and he goes out to work with a with his flask in his hand and a peck in the cheek and the kids are rushed off to bed before, you know, dad comes home and she hosts beautiful parties, etc. And she's just, she's perfect and she's happy. And then one day she walks in on uh, her husband having sex with another man. So it's not just that her marriage is breaking down, it's that 
she's having to deal with the fact that her husband might actually be gay. And obviously, given the setting of, you know, the 1950s, this is something that's extremely taboo. So her life kind of spirals out of control. Everything that she had built up with this, you know, you know, chocolate box lifestyle that she was living has just completely unraveled. And she tries to sort of get her husband into basically what we would call conversion therapy. It's not working. The relationship isn't what it is. People are starting to stare at her in the street. And she has like an identity crisis, I would call it. You know, everything that she has built up and worked for, she kind of, that no longer exists. And she's doubting everything that she's ever had with her husband, because obviously she now believes that he's gay. So she kind of, she starts to embark in this relationship with her gardener, who is a black man. So again, she's sort of, pushing herself out there in terms of, you know, people are starting to notice that she's talking to this black man in this completely white neighbourhood and how scandalous this is. So she's heading off kind of scandals on two fronts. You know, she's got a, a gay husband and she's kind of tempted by this black man and she herself can't believe that she might have feelings for a black man because she's so, you know, consumed in this white Americana that she's brought up in. I love this movie because the contrast between what you see, which is this really vivid you know, beautiful, rich technicolor. She's in like, you know, plum colored skirts and like emerald colored tops and her hair's perfect and everything about it is just so rich and warm. Again, everyone in this film, their life has fallen apart. Like her whole kind of identity of being a housewife is taken away from her and her husband can't deal with who he is because deep down he knows that he's gay as well. And, you know, he's trying to do all these different therapies and stuff like that. And I just... I love the contrast between what you see, as in just the straightforward visuals, and what's actually happening. Todd Haynes obviously loves a strong kind of women in in crisis. He directed the film Carol, and he did the series Mildred Pierce as well. He's obviously quite fascinated by not only that era, but by strong women in that era, sort of trying to forge their way through crisis. I just think this is quite a a nice example of a, a woman Having a, a breakdown, I think a lot of the, if you Google midlife crisis films, what you see is a lot of middle-aged guys. And actually, I think because this is told from the perspective of a woman, and in that particular circumstance and era and time frame, all that sort of thing, it makes it even more interesting. I I haven't seen this in a, in a wee while, actually. I watched it initially when I was at uni, but as soon as we started talking about this, I was like, oh, this would be perfect. Have you guys have you guys seen it at all? I have not. No? Nope. I'm looking through Todd Haynes' videography at the moment and I've only ever seen Dark Water from him. I've not seen anything else that he's done. A real sort of blind spot for me. The time is now 12.31.27 and I have seen a film that John and Sammy have. <laughs> <laughs> I would recommend this. As I say, don't get me wrong, there are moments that are quite twee and it is at times a wee bit style over substance. But I am so swept in by this whole, like, you know, it really does look like it's been made in the 50s. It's really, really well executed. And as I say, I, I like Carol and I love the Mildred Pierce uh, TV series as well because I'm a big fan of the, the Joan Crawford film. So I think he's he obviously has a real thing for women in crisis and, and he does it really well, I have to say. Well, it's interesting what you said there as well. Yeah, most of the most films deal with midlife crisis do deal with men. And even like in real life as well, we see somebody of a certain age like driving a sports car, your first thoughts midlife crisis. You don't really associate, you don't associate it with women in the same way. You do midlife crisis or small dick. That's that's the two thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> see, you wouldn't see John driving about a sports car. He just runs everywhere. I've I've been through my midlife crisis when I turned <laughs> forty. I didn't cut my hair for a whole year. It was cheaper than a sports car and. 
uh, <laughs> a leather jacket and a pair of leather trousers. <laughs> do you have pictures of this era? Somewhere, yes, I do. I've got a couple, somebody took a couple of pictures. I was at a party one time and yeah, it's, it's like down here kind of. John, there is just just less than a year to my wedding would you do me the honor <laughs> <laughs> just kidding um so yeah so now that you've been through your midlife crisis john you're the most equipped to talk about this obviously um your second pick is <laughs> my second pick is uh, going back to the the male problems is a 1965 american comedy called how to murder your wife it stars Jack Lemmon, Vernalisi, Terry Thomas, and also Claire Trevor. It's a film very much of its time. Although, uh, if you look at it now, if you watch this film without watching the first five minutes of it, you would be absolutely horrified because you would say that this is a, a misogynistic nightmare because it puts down women right, left and centre. Sammy's like, what, what was the name of that film? What was the name of that film? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a hoot. Yep. So, but if you take into account the opening monologue from Terry Thomas, then you get a real flavour of the fact that it's, it's really having a go at men and their privilege, especially middle-class, white, middle-aged men and the privileged position they're in and yet they still have problems. Basic plot of the film is Jack Lemmon plays a character called Stanley Ford, who is a cartoonist for newspapers. He writes a cartoon character called Brad Brannigan. Oh, sorry, Bash Brannigan, who is a secret agent. So it's one of these syndicated cartoons. But he doesn't ask Bash Brannigan to do anything he wouldn't do himself. So therefore, he acts out all of the various super spy adventures the A takes part in. Uh, that's one of the opening scenes, which again is a bit problematic because I think there are three main bad guys when he's trying to retrieve a, a microfiche that's stuck inside a, a diamond. And the bad guys are either Chinese, Asian, or I think maybe Indian subcontinent. So uh, you've got problems there right away that none of them are white Americans, you know. But this guy, Stanley, lives the life of luxury. He's got his manservant, played by Terry Thomas, who looks after every, his every need. He exercises. He's, he's a member of an exclusive gym. He, <laughs> he has a shower that is regulated to his body temperature so that when he goes in and has a shower in the morning, it's just exactly right. Everything about his life is fine. He's a confirmed bachelor, and he enjoys himself. And then he goes to... Uh, a bachelor party for one of his friends, which turns out to, it starts off almost like a wake because they're all like, oh no, we've lost another one of our, our friends here. And then the guy comes in and says, she doesn't want to marry me anymore. And it turns into this big party. And of course, it, these type of events, it was traditional for there to be some form of entertainment. And the entertainment in this case is a woman coming out of a cake. Uh, and this woman who comes out of the cake locks eyes with Stanley, and he's that drunk that he ends up married to her. And this is where the crisis comes in because his life completely changes. He doesn't want his life to change. He enjoys what he's doing. Uh, there's additional problems in the fact that 
His wife is Italian. She doesn't speak any English whatsoever. She's absolutely gorgeous. Verna Lacey is uh, an Italian actress who at the time was obviously very young, very glamorous. Uh, which And there's something there as well. She's never named. She's not given a name in the whole film. She's the only character that doesn't have one. So she's almost like this outsider character. And the rest of the film is him trying to get out of this marriage. He changes the comic strip so it becomes a sort of uh, a knockabout comedy strip, the Brannigans and about how Bash fails to really change into a sort of a house husband almost. So he decides that the only way he is going to get out of this is for Bash Brannigan to murder his wife and he comes up with a perfect crime and he draws it out and then obviously there's all sort of shenanigans based on that. Uh, basically because his wife disappears after he stages this pretend murder and then he's charged with her murder because nobody can find her and he's obviously all confessed in a comic strip to it and there's a court case and all that. Um, it's, as I say, a film very much of its time. It plays on certain tropes of the, the nagging wife sitting at home and somehow controlling their husband and basically feeding them up in order to, you know, keep them docile and just keep bringing in the money and all this, which is something that obviously is completely untrue. I think it's, it was even untrue back then, but it was uh, a myth perpetrated at the time. Still is, I suppose, to a certain extent. But, yeah, as I say, if you if you look at it from a sort of the, the gaze of now back to the 60s, it doesn't play well, but it's actually quite a funny film. There's a, a lot of really, really good moments in it. And the, the whole crisis aspect of him trying to get back to his bachelor life is really sort of a midlife crisis for him as well. And uh, Jack Lemmon is just absolutely fantastic in it. Brilliant, brilliant film. I take it neither of you have seen this. No, I, I have not. seen this. Have you seen it? Yeah. I, I, oh, yeah. I thought um, my dad is a massive Jack Lemmon fan. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, I haven't seen it in maybe about 10 years, but I've definitely seen this because I remember the girl popping out the cake. In fact, as soon as you said it, I was like, I think that's that. Yeah. But it's, yeah, if you look at it now, there's a lot of racial and sexual stereotyping that goes on. But, you know, it's a kind of, is it's a Jack Lemmon vehicle? He's playing a sort of, you know, Jack the Lad type of character. And I, I did love the comic strip idea of using this whole thing of, you know, him acting everything out in order to write it down but yeah no I do remember this film and it's made people actually want to go back and watch it again I'll probably cringe a little bit at it because it probably is dated but um I do remember enjoying it at the time yeah Simmy your next pick I I wasn't sure about it as well not because we're debating what middle-aged actually is and this character's the same age as me so that was <laughs> nice pending. yes but <laughs> I went with Tony Stark in Iron Man played by Robert Downey Jr., which needs little to no introduction. And although I've picked Iron Man, I think the midlife crisis theme really permeates over the three movies as a whole and kind of culminates at the end of Iron Man 3. And what you've got here is Tony Stark's billionaire playboy, sleeping with models, journalists, drinking all the time. He's just a total party animal. And for other films, that could be the start of his midlife crisis. But in this, it's almost kind of the, the beginning of the end. And when he's kidnapped by the Five Rings Terrorist Organization, almost dies, sees the effects of his weapons of war are causing the new world, that's when his midlife crisis starts to kind of really kick in. It's almost like a crisis of conscience at this stage when he's realizing, hold on a minute, 
all this stuff I've been doing is wrong. This life I'm living and leading has been bad. I need to try and change this. And we kind of joke about get a midlife crisis by a sports car. Well, he's a billionaire. He's got a fleet of sports cars. What does he do? He builds an iron suit and becomes a superhero. And you could argue, well, is that really his midlife crisis? I would say it is, in a sense, especially in terms of if you take the, the three Iron Man films independently from the bigger MCU and Avengers movies, you get the Iron Man 2 when he's dying. doesn't handle it well. Pushes away, it's close to, people closest to him, and starts getting drunk quite a lot and living like there's no tomorrow. And even though he's Iron Man at this point and he's no longer profiteering off war than that, he's still a very similar character to the Tony Stark in the first movie, before mm-hmm. he becomes Iron Man, to the point he even gets drunk with an Iron Man suit and starts smashing the house up. It's a funny scene at first, but it's also quite dark and an allusion to the Iron Man comics where Tony Stark does suffer from alcoholism and quite controversial for the time, they, they tackled that. By the time you get to the third one, you suffer from PTSD also from the Battle of New York from the Avengers movie understandably so, when he flew into a wormhole and almost died. But by the end of this movie, he almost kind of makes peace with Iron Man part of his character, and although this is not how the franchise went, it was never going to go, by the time that movie's over, it's almost like he's retired Iron Man, and he no longer needs it anymore. He's with Pepper, he's over. He's almost he's over this midlife crisis part of his life, the midlife crisis part being, I'm going to be a superhero and try and do good and be a better person. And it is similar to Birdman in that sense as well, where it's like, I need validation to be seen as something more than what people think I am. And for that, that's why I think uh, more the Iron Man character, Tony Stark, in those three movies, and Iron Man as a film, that he's going through a mental crisis. Yeah. I, I know you've both seen it. Yeah, no, I just I was going to completely agree with you. I think he's the most complicated of all of the, the Marvel characters in terms of, you know, he does have the world at his feet, and to him, it's, it almost seems like, when you contrast him with Captain America, who has literally been bred to be this, you know, kind of soldier, superhero, whatever, he is extremely complicated in the terms of he's been out and lived a life. And, you know, is the technology that he is working with, is that ethical? Is that moral? Is his lifestyle ethical, moral? That kind of, you know, you know, too much money, that sort of thing. I definitely think he's the most interesting of all that kind of Marvel franchise. But yeah, you can kind of see a, a breakdown and back up again over the course of those three movies, for sure. Yeah, yeah you can see his journey from the arrogant warmonger at the start there's a very famous scene where there's the is it a test that they're they're carrying out of the weapons and he's standing there sort of godlike with his arms out and everything so yeah and then it's the journey from that to basically the uh, the finale of endgame which kind of is is his his whole redemption if you like and the fact that he has overcome his own personal demons and he's come to grips with the fact that he just wants to be, he's, he doesn't need to be a younger version of himself. He doesn't need to go back and sort of prove himself anymore. He's, he's content. But yeah, that's a good choice. Yeah, yeah so I talk about some talk about some foreshadowing, whether there was intention or not, and I don't really believe the Marvel film for written out that far in advance. There's a scene in Avengers where he's arguing with Captain America, and Captain America says, definitely me and you is, you're the guy that will make the sacrifice play. And it's like... <laughs> <laughs> However, team cap all the way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, do you know what? This is maybe what to. I have not watched um, either WandaVision or Falcon and Winter Soldier, and I 
I really, really need to watch them. And now that you're talking about me watching all the Marvel movies and stuff in sequence, I, I do need to get on Disney Plus and watching them. Can I just mention one thing about Falcon and Soldier? It's not a spoiler in terms of plot, but this is what I was talking about in terms of the kind of the, the themes and stuff. Uh, there's a bit when Falcon, uh, Sam and Bucky are arguing and the cops roll up mm-hmm. and I speak to Bucky saying, is this Ben Borden you, sir? And it's like, oh, oh. Fuck. Yeah, and that's oh. the kind of that's the kind of themes I'm talking about. This show's doing. I'm like, wow, they're really going somewhere with this. I did not expect. Yeah. That yeah, sells me on it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was sold when I saw Daniel Bruhl in a fur coat striding about. I was like, fuck yeah, I'm watching this. But now, that, <laughs> but at the same time, I was kind of like you. I thought these are kind of going to be shows for kind like watered down versions of yeah. characters. But actually, I'm surprised that you're saying that. That does actually sound quite. Ooh, they're very clever with the way they're pr- they promoted it as well because obviously one division was promoted based around the the sitcom aspect mm-hmm. of it mm-hmm. and it didn't really give anything away so there was odd glimpses in the trailers and Falcon and the Winter Soldier has been marketed very much as an action adventure a buddy cop thing yeah. and the, like you say with the introduction of those sort of elements there's racial elements and there's stuff before that as well just yeah. to, just prior to that and i read up about some of that stuff as well and it actually comes from the comics as well there's there's elements but you don't need to read the comics in order like with all of the marvel stuff you don't need to read the comics in order to get something mm-hmm. from it. it it makes it different if you do but uh, i haven't read all of the sort of marvel comics so there's elements in there that i, I knew nothing about but Yes, it's far, far more powerful than I, I originally thought. And even, like, there's the whole aspect of uh, Falcon the Winter Soldier, which it's not giving anything away. There's, like, they're going through traumas and stuff. Bucky is going through therapy as well. You know, that's that's that, and that goes back to the, the whole Tony Stark thing as well. You know, that these people, they are real or you know what I mean? They're they're real yeah. in terms of they're portrayed as being human beings, not just superheroes, uh, and they all have the problems and their issues and everything as well. So, I I'm I'm astounded that they're managing to sort of maintain such a level because I thought Falcon and the Winter Soldier would have been a real drop after One Division, mm-hmm. primarily because Falcon and the Winter Soldier was supposed to be first. That was meant to be the first series. Mm-hmm. That, and then they were going into one division and one division and then feed into Doctor Strange next year or whatever, you know, obviously the schedule's all over the place, but yeah. Right. Yes, yeah, I'll just say quickly as well, uh, Mary, for you watch it, the, the whole kind of therapy stuff, like that, do you think, oh, superheroes and therapy, they could, they could do that so many different ways, but it's not done for laughs in the slightest. Uh-huh. And it makes perfect sense why you would be as well, and it's just so well done, but even go back to One Division as well. The, the, the show's about grief and dealing with grief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, you watch it and you kind of you, you turn up for the superhero battles and stuff, and then it gives you it starts hitting you with all these like really deep themes, and you're like, Wow, <laughs> I was not expecting this. But it's it's good that they're getting the chance in the, the shows to explore the characters in that way because they've got more time to do it. Yeah, and to be honest with you, I've always thought about the Marvel front. I mean nice nice looking battle scenes and whatever you want to call it aside i've always thought the strength of the marvel franchise has been on the sort of the one-to-one conversations or the more sort of intimate character development moments as opposed to these big you know epic you know sweeping battle scenes whatever i've always preferred that more kind of intimate um approach to their character development so no i will definitely um i definitely need to watch 
both of them. I think that obviously I've not actually, for all that I have been on like Twitter and stuff like that, I've not actually seen any spoilers for any of them, which is something sort of no, a miracle, to be honest with you. Um, but I'm looking for, I know that Dick Van Dyke was a consultant on WandaVision and being a Mary Poppins obsessive. And, you know, my dad used to watch like reruns of the Dick Van Dyke show and stuff like that. I'm just kind of intrigued as to how that has all played out. So yeah, I definitely will um, give it a watch. But onto something extremely more infantile, to be quite honest, that is just isn't as clever in terms of its humour. My last pick is Judd Apatow's 2005 movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. I don't know why this movie makes me laugh as much as it does. Like it, On paper, if I read this, I would think that just sounds like too blokey. It's not funny. But even watching it now, like 15 years down the line, it's still funny. And it was kind of part of a string of comedies that came out at the time that had the likes of you know Steve Carell and Seth Rogen and Paul Rudd and all that in it. And obviously centers around the premise of uh, Steve Carell's character, Andy, who works in an electronics store, who has just obviously never popped his cherry. I remember go I was on a first date, I think, when I went to see this film at the cinema. I'm, I just always remember the scene where they're playing poker and he's trying to describe boobs. And to this day, it still <laughs> makes me piss myself. Like, it's so funny. And then the obviously Twiggy's a virgin and all this sort of thing. So all of these, like, rubbish pals that he's acquired in this store, like, you know... Paul Rudd and stuff like that who are and the character of Jay as well and then you've got Seth Rogen's kind of stoner character and you've got Jane Lynch as this sort of like absolutely you know sexually sadistic store manager and she finds out he's a virgin and they all try to help him sort of lose his virginity by taking him to like speed dating and he meets that woman called Gina which again to this day just makes me piss myself laughing and everything that they do they take him on like big nights out to clubs and he only seems to meet crazy girls who like puke all down themselves and stuff like that and he just wants to go home and play with his action figures like he's not interested in that type of lifestyle and obviously that kind of turns around when he meets Trish played by Catherine Keener and they sort of form this relationship and he has to because he actually likes her so much he then tries to delay having sex with her because he knows he's going to be bad at it yeah it's it's not really a midlife crisis I guess for him it is it's a crisis of identity because he's trying to be one of the one of the guys and he's he's just not but yeah it's very light-hearted obviously in contrast to my previous two picks but this film I don't know why there's just something about it that still really gives me the giggles and you guys were obviously giggling there when we're talking about various things it's just it's so well executed it's so funny but at the same time it's actually relatively sympathetic although you're kind of laughing at him and stuff like that like he's not it's it's not a take the piss film in a nasty way like it is like he is a kind of sympathetic character you know there's lots of guys out there in their 40s that have rooms full of like comic book figures and stuff like that. I live with one. And although he's not in his 40s, so tell me if I've seen that. I just, I like the fact that it wasn't like he was this atrocious dweeb. He was a kind of relatively normal guy that it just through a series of unfortunate events, it just hadn't happened for him. But yeah, it's, it's just, it's really funny. It's made me want to go and watch it again just for that poker scene alone, but he's just trying to talk about bags of sand. So. <laughs> Oh, I've lost it. <laughs> and I take it from both of your giggles that you've both seen this. I'd like it. Yeah, yeah I, love, I, love, I love this film. <laughs> I do, I do. I love, I love this film. Um, it took me a while to see it. And I, I, find, I can find your a bit hit and miss. I think his films oh, can be totally over. Is. Totally is, I, yeah. I think his films can be too long. And like, you watch like a two-hour comedy, you're like, right, this could be a 90-minute comedy easily. Why is there so much in this? With this, for example, though, this is where he gets it just right, in my opinion. Um, 
the cast is brilliant. But they usually are, but the cast is brilliant. The chemistry of Goat's excellent. And it's just genuinely really, really funny. It's a great story. It just says sympathetic. And the midlife crisis thing almost comes about with his pals as much as him because the other one's having the crisis that they can't believe the oh, mate yeah, has yeah. still a virgin. Aye, and the other ones, yes, yeah, yeah, and, and the other ones that are like they're losers themselves. The, the kind of the lives they have, and like Seth Rogen is just constantly stoned all the time, things like that. Paul Rudd kind of admitting to just kind of wanking half, and he's made so supposed to have a conversation. With <laughs> <laughs> it's like you never jerk off. I've done it twice since I've been here. <laughs> uh, oh, it's, it's, it's Michael just... McDonough as well when they're listening to Yamo be there. <laughs> <laughs> And then they take away, they're trying to kind of like do more for stuff. And I, I do think there is midlife crisis aspect because that's like a makeover and taking away his chest waxed and that. And the fact that that scene is real, I oh. think, just as to how hilarious it is. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a brilliant story. It's, it's, it's sweet in many ways, um, mm-hmm. but it's genuinely just really, really funny. And yeah, I think it's a brilliant film. Absolutely brilliant. Good choice. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's, it's because of the improvisational element to it, I think, the, the way that they will Judd Apatow works in that way, doesn't it? They, they do one take with the script and then they improvise around it and keep going and keep going until they can get stuff. And if they don't get it, then they, they use the, the sort of the main take. But yeah, it works really well. I like to say it's the chemistry between them all. And I mean, Steve Carell is just fantastic and everything. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I can't watch the, the chest waxing scene without going, ooh! <laughs> <laughs> oh, he actually bleeds at one point, and that's a really because yes. he's so hairy, like he's proper like Tom Selleck hairy chested. And I honestly thought that must have been like a like a piece, like a like a chest wig. I don't know what that what that is, but to find out that no, he is actually that hairy, and he did actually do that is is grim. There's a lot of speed date as well when he keeps just repeating the questions. <laughs> oh no, that's when he goes into the bookstore and he meets Elizabeth book- Banks character for the first time, and she's like. Um, we have lots of do-it-yourself books and he's like, do you like to do it yourself? <laughs> 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 oh, God. Oh, I'm going to be crying all day at this now. <laughs> Haven't you watched Sorry. it now? Oh, the, the beauty of this film well. is this it's on ITV2 every other week. Oh, so, all the time, yeah. yep. It's either this or Hot Fuzz, yeah. John, your second pick. Yeah. And third pick, sorry. Going on a complete downer from there. Uh <laughs> My last pick is the 1968 American film, The Swimmer. It's described as a surreal drama, and it's not too far off the mark, to be perfectly honest. The plot of it is that out of the bushes in a leafy Connecticut suburb comes Ned Merrill. He is a 50-something-year-old man, played by Burt Lancaster, who looks bloody fantastic. He, he looks absolutely stunning in this film. And he's he meets some of his, his... He's basically in the house of one of his friends, and he's there to swim in their pool. And he swims in the pool, and he talks to them. And he figures out during the conversation that if he goes from house to house with all his, where all his friends live, he is able to, there's like a river between there and his home, and he was able to swim all the way there. He's able to swim in this river that he names after his wife. So that's what he decides to do. And he goes from place to place, swimming in the pools, meeting all the people. Now, at first, when you, you meet him, 
it's all very nice, it's all very chatty, it's talking to these people, they've all just been to a big party the night before, they're all hung over. The first time that you see anybody apart from the Burt Lancaster character, it's somebody holding a drink and they're offering him a drink. So therefore you get a, a, a flavour of the fact that this is all around sort of middle-class America in the 60s. And the, it's again, it's the same sort of idea as American Beauty. It all looks very nice on the surface, but underneath it's it's really, really harsh. Now, there's something kind of unspoken at the beginning, which comes out about the Ned Merrill character and what he's doing. He's never dressed in the film. He's only ever wearing these small blue trunks, apart from one scene where he takes off the trunks and he swims nude in a pool. It's a pool that uh, belongs to a couple of naturists, so therefore it kind of fits in with all that. And as it goes on, you kind of see the fact that Ned isn't everything that he was. There are flashes that come to him, flashes in his eyes and everything and the way that he looks at stuff that indicates that there's something really serious going on. And it's all got to do with the fact that something has happened to him and it gets kind of teased out. You eventually get it towards the end of the film and I won't spoil it because it's, it's quite a, a dramatic ending and everything. But it's, it's done in such a way that it really engages you. You're kind of going, right, so what is actually going on here? And the, the way that the film puts that across is quite in quite an oblique way because it uses a lot of sort of 60s sort of counterculture images. It's all very hippy-trippy at times, you know, like soft focuses uh, in the woods and all this sort of stuff. And it's all, it's all a wee bit weird in certain places, but if you stick with it, it really works. And the way that the film actually comes across, it, it, it speaks an awful lot about America in the late 60s. It even touches on racism as well. At one point, he comes across a character who is the driver for a wealthy family, and he goes, oh, Steve, you know, how are you doing? And the guy's like, no, Steve was the last guy, you know, so he doesn't even recognise the fact that it's a different person. He's just recognising them by their colour and all that. And he's a very sort of chatty character, but he's unable to chat to this character at all because the other character doesn't engage with him because he obviously started off on the wrong foot and everything. But Lancaster is amazing in this film. It's a completely different type of role for him. It's quite a dark role. It's a, a role where he is not having to be bigger than he actually is. If you think about some of his performances uh, throughout his career, he always plays sort of big, expansive characters, you know, very out there. This is quite a character who, in a way, he's, he's kind of buttoned down and everything. It works really, really well. And there's a, a nice wee cameo from Joan Rivers in one of her very early performances where she's actually got a natural face and everything and all her own nose and ears and everything like that as well. And a nice wee side note, the fact that Burt Lancaster has to swim in all these different pools, he was actually afraid of water and he had to overcome that fear in order to take on this role, which is quite amazing considering that the guy was an acrobat, you know, in a previous life and he's one of these, almost like a prototype action star at the time, you know. Have either of you seen this particular gem? No? I have not, no. It was, it was funny to see your mention talk about there. I was getting I was getting mixed up with another film that I still hadn't seen called Swim, uh, Swim Fan, 
Oh, I've seen that. Oh, yeah, the yeah. Robert De Niro film, yeah. Right. That's what I was thinking of when you mentioned that there. And it wasn't until you were discussing it, I went, that's not the same film, even though I haven't seen that either, but no. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least you guys think it was Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't even heard of this. Like, it's just not even on my radar at all, but it sounds kind of like one of those ones that kind of, like just that way creeps under your skin type of film. It sounds yeah. like that. It sounds really intriguing, but I have I've literally not even heard about it. I don't even know it existed. It pops up occasionally on these like Sony movie channels mm. and uh, TCM and things like that. You can usually find it on there for other month. But yeah, it's, it's it's definitely worth a watch. It's only like ninety minutes long as well. It really doesn't outstay its welcome, but it's a very 60s film. I think it's the soundtrack was done by Marvin Hamlish. It was his first sort of big commission. Yeah, it's it's definitely worthwhile. And it's, it, there's like some nice wee stories in the background of it as well with the, the, the various people involved and all that. And Burt Lancaster regards it as one of his best performances in his whole career, just because it's it's something that's a wee bit different. So yeah. That's me. Simmy, your final pick for today? My final pick is uh, the 2008 film by Darren Aronofsky, The Wrestler. Now, I think this film does share similar themes to we've discussed in other ones, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but uh, this is about um, Randy the Ram Robinson, played by Mickey Rourke, who was a fairly famous professional wrestler in the 1980s. Well, fast forward to the late 2000s, and his star has long faded, and He's wrestling independent shows here and there for like a few quid and he's working part-time jobs to help support himself. He just can't leave the limelight. You know, he just uh, craves that love of the fans and he's wrestling these like, small shows and stuff. That's all he's really got. He's got a, he's a strange relationship with his daughter. The, the most, his closest companion is a stripper that he's paying money to to, to listen to him, uh, played by Melissa Tomei, who... Uh, who's also brilliant in the film, and it's kind of parallel to the characters, the fact, um, and I use this term not without any insult, because she looks absolutely amazing in it, but she's an aging stripper. She's in her like early and mid-40s by this point. It's not a young person's game, and that's made clear in the movie as well, the fact that she's a scene where she's dancing naked, and nobody's paying attention to her, because they're not interested. So she's almost going through her own kind of little crisis as well. Uh, she's realising, wait a minute, Maybe I'm getting too old for this life. Randy isn't feeling that way, though. He's constantly trying to kind of reclaim his fame in a similar way to that Regan Thomas is in Birdman. Uh, Regan Thompson, sorry, in Birdman. And it, the film kind of culminates to the kind of end where he wants to have a one more super show with his famous rival for the 80s. And I mean, the guy's a mess. You know, it's like... Um, he tries to reconcile with his daughter. It goes tits up because it's says to get steaming and drugged up and hooed about instead. And he's got a heart condition. He shouldn't be wrestling, you know, but he just can't get away from that limelight. He just needs that adulation from the crowd, which is very similar to Birdman and Tony Stark and Alan Man needing that adulation and that validation of I'm a good person. Everybody must love me. And even talking about another round, these, these characters are so much happier I thought them up, I felt much happier when people adored them. Like Martin as a teacher, he loved the fact that he's, the kids liked him when he was drunk because he was more open. And you get that a lot in this film with the wrestler. And 
even Marissa Tomei's character, it's a stripper, she likes the attention, she's not getting it anymore. She has this common sense to walk away. He doesn't, and I don't want to ruin the film. It's a fairly ambiguous ending, but you kind of make your own assumption to what happens. And it's a very tragic movie as well. And you're just watching this guy who's clearly washed up, but unable to just hang it up. You've both seen it? Yeah, it's bleak. It's, it's, I always thought it was a very bleak film. I liked the way that it kind of mirrored Mickey Rourke's actual life as well. The fact that obviously yeah. he went into boxing, you know, I mean, when you, when you see him in some of his earlier films, he is a, he's, well, it's not a way to say it, he was a beautiful man who's really, really good looking. And then when you see him actually in The Wrestler, he's completely different. He's, oh, it's, it's, it's kind of tragic in a way, but yes, the the film really does work. It, like you say, it is a very ambiguous ending, but yeah, you, you do kind of get a sense. You, you kind of understand why it's, he's going through what he's going through. It's the adoration part of it. It's the validation more than anything else. It doesn't necessarily need to be a crowd. He just needs to be validated, but yeah, he wants to be validated in his own terms. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be remembered as a has-been. He wants to be remembered as being of some sort of value, being able to do what he's doing, and that's why you, you get the whole sort of the big scene at the end and everything like that. But yeah, I, it's a really good movie, really good choice. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to like this film because I don't like wrestling and I'm not a particularly massive Mickey Rourke fan either, but I think you're right. I think, it, you know, him himself looks like when you do look at him when he's younger and when you look at him in this movie, he looks like sad, like he's like full of filler and his hair's all stringy and stuff like that. And it just, it totally drew me in, kind of similar to the, the Thomas Bo Larson character in another, I just felt so emotionally compelled towards him because he's pitiable, but he doesn't actually want your pity. And it's all, the, again, a kind of almost like a sort of victim of circumstance. And yes, he is seeking out this particular career path, but things just haven't gone the way that he wanted them to. And now he's sort of chasing this youthful dream that never really materialises, but no, that's a great pick. I mean, I actually really, really loved it. I was shocked by how much I really enjoyed it um, when I watched it, and that's a really, really good final pick. And you can imagine, you can mention a little bit of the validation side there, John Val, and the adoration, and you're right, and it's, that's the thing with all these kind of characters, I think, from all the films we've spoken about today, it's looking for their purpose. Mm-hmm. And at a stage of their life, they're like, well, I've been on this earth for a few decades now, and I still really don't know what I should be doing. And where they go to the extremes, or well, so extremes, they're really looking for a big change and to look for a reason to why they're there, why they exist. Yeah, if if you think about it, when you're younger, you go to school, you learn, you're told you have to learn in order to progress and get a good job. And it's the idea is that by the time you reach middle age, you will be settled, you will be doing what you want to be doing, you will have your career, you will have your family, you will be happy. Uh, It's only when you get to that sort of stage that you realise that that's complete bullshit. It's a constant, you're constantly changing, everybody's constantly changing. It doesn't work that way. But because we've been fed that idea from a very young age, then for a lot of people, it comes as a real shock that, they are no, they, they, you know, the, their best years are behind them, kind of idea. So they react in a way, whether that's buying a pair of leather trousers or it's drinking to excess or 
you know, trying to relive old glory days in the ring. Yeah, it's all valid. Yeah, I think there's a real, I mean, there must be a whole section of, you know, psychology or therapy on this whole kind of, this is not how I thought my life would turn out and I'm not where I'm supposed to be in life by that point because culturally, I'm talking like centuries back, we've set up these markers for ourselves. And not to go on my soapbox, but that's particularly prevalent for women because you're supposed to have babies by a certain age. And let's be honest, women don't age as well. You know, when when women age, it's, they become old. And then that's when, you know, people start filling themselves full of, you know, Botox and fillers and, you know, hairlines are getting lifted and all that sort of thing. Whereas men get older and they're allowed to age. You know, it's like, oh, salt and pepper hair is sexy or you grow a beard or dad bod is sexy. <laughs> John, that was just for you. But for women... Like, loads of female actresses have even spoken about how their careers basically ended at 40, and that's when they started getting relegated to mum roles, even though they were maybe only a few years older than the person who was playing their son. So I'm kind of fascinated by the psychology of it all. I think this has been quite an interesting pod for that as well, and it's given me new material to seek out as well. So, um, Sammy, I know you'd put a tweet out. Did anyone respond with their um, thoughts on what made a good midlife crisis film? We got one review. Uh, one review, one reply, sorry, from Graham Campbell at Sad Juffrey, and he also mentioned American Beauty. Yes, it's a kind of quintessential one. So, yeah. um, if you guys, if our dear listener, has any thoughts on good midlife crisis movies that you've seen, or movies that you'd like to see us cover, or what you're most looking forward to, you can email us at podcasts at moviescramble.co.uk and you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Moviescramble as well. We'd love to hear from you. But for now, until the next pod, it is goodbye from me and goodbye from John and Sammy. Bye. Bye.